Produced by PI Media. Abundant in volume yet scarce, soothing and relaxing yet bearing a devastating force. Defies the laws of physics and it can heal as much as it can harm. It is the source of life. I'm Idan and from Israel Newtech and PI Media, this is Waterline. Welcome back to Waterline. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee I have seen righteous before me in this generation. For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. And Noah went in, and his sons, and his wife, and his sons' wives with him, into the ark, because of the waters of the flood. In the six hundred year of Noah's life, all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. And the waters prevailed, and were increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went in upon the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle, and the creeping things, and the fowl of the heaven, and they were destroyed from the earth, and Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed upon the earth a hundred and fifty days. Noah's Ark is a story which is well known by at least four billion people, mainly Christians, Muslims and Jews, and as such is widely shared as a metaphor used by many far beyond the realms of the holy texts of these religions, the Old and New Testament and the Quran. I'm certain that you have used the idiom at least once in your life of a great flood that will come and wash and make all anew. Water is by far the strongest substance on earth. It can dissolve rocks and crumble mountains. And yet, ask anyone what is water, and the first thing they'll almost always say is, water is life. How then are we able to mediate water's contrasting capacity of creating life on the one hand and wreaking havoc and utter devastation 
on the other? And what is the effect water has on us humans on a metaphysical level? How do we perceive water? These questions have been lurking in the wings for quite some time now. I've posed these questions in the interviews I've conducted. Some of the voices you'll hear in this episode will be familiar. Some are new. Like Rochi Kemka's voice. She is from the World Bank. I had the chance to interview her during the 8th World Water Forum in Brasilia in March of 2018. She is a co-lead in Global Partnership and India program of the 2030 Water Resources Group and segments from our conversation will be featured in future episodes. It was interesting to hear her take on water when she was asked to take off her economist's hat. Does water have spirit? Absolutely. And I'm, I'm going to use a cliche in saying water is life, but you see it all around you. Whenever you talk to anybody about what is integral to society, to life, a lot of civilization revolves around water. So many cities are established on the banks of rivers. Agriculture is, is heavily dependent on water. It's one of the key ingredients to survival itself. So I, I think it has spirit in multiple ways. The spirit of water for me is its fluidity. And fluidity in connecting people, in connecting society, in connecting ideas, in being a cross-sectoral resource. No sector can, can be deprived of water in order to sustain itself. So it's not just industries, uh, it's not the urban sector, it's not agriculture alone. The environment, whenever you think about survival, water is, is cutting across all of these. So it's the fluidity of water. Ever the Economist there is something quite different about water sector people. Think about conferences and trade shows. There's something in the air and something about how people with certain professional backgrounds conduct themselves. You can enter a room full of people in suits and you'll be able to tell in a matter of seconds if you have a room full of lawyers, accountants or insurance agents. You'll see all types of people. Happy and miserable, show-offs and shy, outgoing and cynics. Optimism in the air? A strong feeling of vigor and a can-do attitude? Well, each to their own. However, upon meeting water sector people, especially in a conference setting, energy levels are always high, enthusiasm skyrockets, and the urgency to get things done is in the air, because every day you haven't inched closer towards quenching people's thirst and securing water needs for farmers and industry alike is a day wasted. There is something about this sector that stands out once you look at it from the outside. People tend to take responsibility on an almost visceral level. They are more than just defined by their job. Here's Will Sarney, a water strategist and consultant. I'll do this until the day I'm no longer relevant uh, or dead. Um, you know, I don't know which one will come first, but... Um, I enjoy and believe I can add value to the private sector, thinking through why water has value to their business, getting them to move beyond, this is my water footprint, I'll just be more efficient, to, you know what, I'm a global company. I've got 200,000 employees, and I can harness that power to be part of the solution. And I believe that has business value, and it has societal value. I also believe that working with NGOs and helping them understand the private sector view and building an ecosystem of stakeholders is important. The mission of a lifetime. The water sector is a place where individuals feel they can have a real impact on the lives of many. 
Here is Andre Vonkchowski, Operations Manager at World Transforming Technologies. How did you get to this? Oof, that's a very long story. I have time. Go ahead. <laughs> so as I mentioned, I'm an economist by uh, formation. I worked at the private sector for a number of years. But at one point I realized I was not professionally satisfied. I, I really felt there was a need to integrate some social impact in my work. I worked at the banking sector in Brazil. Then at Unilever for a number of years in, in Brazil and the United Kingdom. And then I realized, okay, this is very nice and all, but I do want my work to have a positive impact on society. It was a process of understanding that this doesn't make me happy and perhaps I should you know, direct my efforts towards improving society. And social enterprises was a pretty interesting place to do that because yeah? I could still use all my business skills and experience, but direct them towards social impact. Are you happy now? Very much. I am a few privileged to do what I do. My day-to-day is really interesting. And in one moment, I mean the communities discussing and understanding what their issues are, working alongside partners that have been there for you know, 35 years. So it's very humbling to be with them. At the same time, we access this world of innovation and invention, which is really cool as well. So it's also really intellectually interesting. Working with water makes you think big, really big says Brio Michaud from Waterpreneurs. We come with the concern that security and peace on earth is a huge issue. Water can be an entry point to address this issue. Water is related to anything else. More, I mean, I would say that many people in other sectors could say that as well, but without water, there is no life. Without water, there is no food. Without water, there is no anything. So if you start bringing water to people, they can stop, for example, waiting for hours in lines and to go to the well and, and start some kind of education, start a business, livelihood programs. So for me, it's like an entry point for, for sustainable development on other sectors as well. I asked Dr. Xavier Leflev, who heads the work on water at the Environment Directorate of the OECD, if he knows what I was talking about. It's interesting that you say that because I've been around for quite a few years in the water sector and what makes me stick, I mean, I love my job, but in addition to that, I love the water community. I think there is a great spirit in the water community. People who work on water, they think they are different in a way. They realize that they're working on a topic which is not, you know, any kind of topic or substance or resource, if you like. So there is a very strong commitment in the water community and I really enjoy that atmosphere. We all are committed to make things happen. We can't fail because that, I mean, it's not an option. So you, you have that feeling, I think, in the water community, which is quite small. And uh, if you keep going in the different conferences or fora, after a few years, you meet the, the same people because it's a, it's a small community. But with a very strong feeling of commitment, we will make things happen. We have started. The job has not been done fully yet. There is more to be done. We understand that through our knowledge, our experience, we care and we do think we can contribute to a better world. But in the very physical sense of the term, we're not going to make people richer or wealthier, but we can contribute to food security so they can be fed, they can drink water, they can enjoy recreational activities in rivers, they can enjoy uh, landscapes. This idea that through my job, actually, I do care and I can make a contribution to the livelihood of the people. That really makes uh, me love my job.
You may say that the story about Noah and the Ark, as it appeared in the Old Testament and then made its way to the New Testament and the Quran, is unique and shared by the main three monotheistic religions. However, when you look around, you see that the story about a man that, either being ordered or on his own volition, builds a vessel to house his family and an assortment of wildlife creatures for them to survive decimation, is a myth shared by almost every group of people everywhere in the world. Flood myths are widespread. Humanity all around the globe, ages before our world became hyper-connected, shared a common myth regarding water's destructive ability on the verge of total annihilation. The closest to Noah's story is the Epic of Gilgamesh, king of Uruk, midway between today's Baghdad and Basra, Iraq. Utnapishtim, an ancestor of Gilgamesh, was ordered by Enki, the Sumerian god of water, to build a giant ship to preserve life. He was told to take on board his family, the craftsman of the village, don't ask me why, and baby animals, so they will all survive a flood that will wipe out all living creatures which are not on the vessel. Utnapishtim had a dove as well. In India, a man called Manu saved a small fish from harm and in turn, to show his gratitude, the fish warned Manu from a flood that would eradicate life. Manu took care of the fish for some time. The fish grew and one day he ordered Manu to build a big ship as the flood was imminent. Once the flood hit, Manu tied the ship to the fish. The fish then guided the ship through the floodwaters to safety on a mountaintop. Manu then became the father of civilization. In Greece, Zeus grew angry with human beings' bad behavior and decided to kill them all. Prometheus, who created humans, wished to spare his own son, Deokalion, and his wife, Pira, daughter of Pandora. Prometheus hid them in an ark. The flood came, but Deokalion and Pira were saved. Eventually, their vessel landed on Mount Parnassus, or Mount Othris, or Puka, depends who tells the story. The couple, once on firm ground again, was permitted by Zeus to repopulate the earth by throwing stones over their heads. Stones that were thrown by Deokalion became men, and those thrown by Pira, once they hit the ground, became women. On we go. In China, Mr. Fuhi, his wife, three sons and three daughters survived a great flood in a boat, thus making Mr. Fuhi the father of civilization. In Mexico, the Toltec natives tell a story about a single family that survived a flood that destroyed the world. The Aztecs talk about a righteous man called Tapi. He was told to build a boat to take his wife and a pair of each animal that lived. A flood came. He had a dove as well. The Incas tell about two brothers who were told by llamas about an imminent flood. The variation, no ark, but rather the mountain they were on kept rising and they were saved with their families. The Native American tribe Chipewa talk about a man called Nanabuju. The Mongolians talk about Hailibu, the Scandinavians, the Celts, the Panamanians, the Kikuyu from Kenya and the Ekoi from Nigeria are all just a fraction of the many, many more tribes, clans, groups, peoples and nations that have a flood myth. It seems that humanity shared a common fear of water's destructive power. Flood myths tell the story of near annihilation, about water's ability to purge. But time and time again, life emerged from it. Humanity survived the flood and is recreated, with a promise that this extermination 
will not recur. What is it about water that makes it so special? Although this episode's name is The Spirit of Water, let us continue with a very practical, physical, substantial look at water, at the molecular level of water, basic chemistry. So I called Dr. Renana Gershoni Poran, senior scientist and lecturer at ETH Zurich, the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology. Renana, what is water? Idan, that is such a general question. <laughs> so what should I ask then? How about, what can you tell me about water? Okay, so what can you tell me about water? Well, Idan, that's a great question. I can tell you that water is a chemical substance that is made up of one atom of oxygen and two atoms of hydrogen, mm-hmm. where the atom of oxygen is bound to the two atoms of hydrogen. Sounds the same to me. <laughs> well, it's actually different because if you just look at the molecular formula, which is H2O, that doesn't tell you whether the hydrogens are bound to each other or not. The hydrogens are not bound to each other. They are each bound to the oxygen atom. Why is that so important? The reason it's important to know the structure of the molecule of water is because that will determine the properties of water as, as a substance in bulk. For example, it explains why water boils at 100 degrees centigrade and it explains why ice is less dense than water in its liquid form, which is something that is usually surprising. Usually solids are more dense. It expands as it freezes, in other words. And that's why for water, we call this the anomaly of water. However, once you understand the molecular structure of water, it's actually quite simple to explain why this happens. Most of the physical properties of water, including the high boiling point, And the special structure upon freezing comes from what we call intermolecular forces, which are the connections between neighboring molecules of water. Many of the physical properties that we associate with water are a result of the type of interactions that water molecules can make. If we imagine that each water molecule can hold out a hand and make an interaction with another compound, then water is really special. In the sense that with only three atoms, it can reach out four hands. It can make four such interactions with neighboring molecules. And what's special about that is that it creates this very tight network between neighboring water molecules. And that's why it requires so much energy to boil water. That's why we need such a high temperature to boil water. But it also explains why water is such a good solvent for many types of compounds, specifically for salts. Can you understand the fascination with water? Do you think that people in ancient times related to these molecular relationships? I can. At the molecular level, people obviously did not know this for a very long time. This is relatively recent research into the, you know, the molecular structure and these types of things about water. But I think from throughout humanity or throughout developed society, there's always been this sense That water is something very special, and we, without even knowing it, we take advantage of the special properties of water. I mean, there, there is a reason that we don't drink methanol. There is something special about water that I have this belief that evolution has gone hand in hand with the properties of water, that we have adapted to live within an environment that has water. There is this special adaptation of biological life to the special properties of water, the fact that water boils at a certain temperature, the fact that water dissolves so many different minerals and salts, that is what enables us to sustain life. On the other hand, there's this paradox that also too much water is not good for you. 
Because if you drink too much water, you could actually get what's called water poisoning and you can die. Because you end up diluting yourself? Uh, <laughs> that's a nice way of putting it. But yes, that's actually true. What happens is you change the concentration of salts in your, in your blood, which is needed for essential biological functions. There is something very unique about water. It's also part of the way society developed. But the fact that we use water for purification, for cleansing, and that for essentially washing stuff away from ourselves, but also for bringing it into ourselves. So there's this dichotomy that sh- tells us that water has so many different functions for us. Renanah's remark about the societal functions water bears brought me to contact Graham Harvey, professor of religious studies at the Open University in the United Kingdom. I asked him about traditions and rituals from far and wide. I think if you were to look through lots of introductions to specific religions, you would find references to some sort of water ceremonies or purification rites and so on. Half of the human population in the world today is either Christian, Muslim or Jewish. And if you look at water traditions, I assume through the Old Testament, the, the Bible and the Quran set in the the Near East or the Middle East, it is drenched with water. Yes. So water takes on a, a special significance when it's a rare commodity. Every human population needs a water source and they become places where people meet and socialize and share. But they also become places of competition. So can you water your flocks? Can you protect your water supply as in Jerusalem? Can you protect the springs from possible invading armies? And then You know, you think about uh, Moses and the Exodus journeys, the idea that Moses and Aaron strike a rock and the water flows from the rock. So it, it kind of travels with the people throughout the wilderness. And then increasingly there are rituals. So initially priests in the temple have to be pure in various ways, have to wear the right clothes, but they also have to be washed and clean in that way. That becomes, after the destruction of the temple, they become democratized into everybody has to go to the mikveh and uh, get cleaned in this ritual way. So regardless of whether they washed in the morning or not, they have to wash in a particular way. And then the Christians take up the idea of purification, but they make it a single event in which somebody converting to Christianity gets baptized. So it's not quite the same as these regular washings for purification. It's a marker of a rebirth. And then that becomes elaborated into one of the, the major ceremonies of all kinds of Christianity. Chronologically, so, afterwards, comes the uh, Islam and the yeah. way that people purify before they even go into the mosque. Yeah. This becomes actually a communal act. Yes. So even the construction of mosques worldwide, one of those things in the courtyard, before you get in to, to pray with the community, you wash, uh, and again, particular parts of your body. So these are religions that are very communal and expect those kinds of standards of hygiene. So these uh, traditions... We, I say we, the, the monotheistic believers, we got traditions that were prevalent in our area beforehand. Yeah. How did it get into this chain of Judaism, Christianity, Islam? Well, I think if you were to look at any of the religions in the area before the rise of the monotheistic tradition, you'd find rituals of purity before that too. One of the major influences on the evolution of Judaism in its more recent forms is the Zoroastrian tradition. So although for Zoroastrians still, 
fire is the most sacred element. Still, there's washing to be done before you approach the holy fire. So that, that's a more ancient tradition than the contemporary form of Judaism, Christianity, or Islam. Go back to the Hebrew Bible and you think one of the first things is mentioned is the water. God creates or reorganizes the cosmos, separates night and day, but also separates water from land. And there are lots of these great cosmological stories around the world where deities and ancestors and others create order. And the structuring of the world to have dry places and wet places is very important. So Native American narratives too. What commonalities can you draw from far apart places, the Americas, Southeast yep. Asia, the Pacific Islands? Is there a commonality? Um, Well, only very broad things in the sense that uh, all humans, all mammals, all living beings need water. So everybody is going to have to live where, there, where there's water, but then humans evolve religious traditions in which water is not just a necessity of life, but a sacred thing to be respected. And that's true not only of humans, but also of our nearest animal ancestors, so chimpanzees too. There's now a lot of evidence that chimpanzees and other species with whom we're closely related are like us in many ways. One of them is that they express awe in particular situations. So chimpanzees have been observed doing particular kinds of dances when they encounter a waterfall and also when there's a dramatic thunderstorm. They do these kind of rain dances. And if you saw humans doing that kind of thing, you would very easily say, this is a religious ceremony. But because we're talking about chimpanzees, we're kind of reluctant. But there are other things that chimpanzees do which are like human rituals. So some chimpanzees uh, have food rules. Some of them eat ants, but not termites, even though they both exist in the same place. And other chimpanzees eat termites, but not ants, although they could eat both. So again, if you were to talk about Judaism or Islam, and you talk about kashrut or halal, you'd say these are religious food rules. But when chimpanzees have food rules, we're reluctant. So they do these things, they have these water ceremonies, they have these food rules, and I think that we're justified in saying they have some sort of religious activities that, that's well worth exploring further. So it seems that our effect towards water is embedded in us on an evolutionary level. We are hardwired to admire water. Ancient cultures and traditions saw nature through a prism of basic elements, classifications of substance and matter. While some of them include metal or see air as wind, not surprisingly, water is an element they all share. The attribution of nature's elements to human traits is still common these days. If you go over a list of friends in your mind, You'll probably identify your bubbly, fierce-tempered, no-BS friend as a fiery type. And another one, who is easygoing, thoughtful, and generally calm, to resemble the surface of a placid lake on a spring morning. I'm sure that you can see a person you know in the words of Lao Tse, the Chinese philosopher and father of Taoism. Lao Tse said that water is fluid, soft, and yielding, but water... will wear away rock, which is rigid and cannot yield. As a rule, whatever is fluid, soft and yielding will overcome whatever is rigid and hard. This is another paradox. What is soft is strong. We interact with nature and since, you know what's coming now, water is life, it is only fair to try and look deeper into this relationship. In 1999, 
Dr. Masaru Imoto, an author and a doctor of alternative medicine, published a book called Messages from Water. The book featured tantalizing photos of water crystals, beautiful and symmetric. Dr. Imoto saw the essence of life in the Japanese word hado, translated into English as a wave or a surge, but the best translation would be apparently vibration. He said that hado is the intrinsic vibrational pattern at the atomic level in all matter. It is the smallest unit of energy, and thus went on to find its effect on water. The method? Freezing water droplets and at the point of crystallization, putting them under a microscope and examining the result. Hexagons meant harmony and purity. Tap water contained chlorine and so no hexagonal crystallization appeared. When spring water from a natural source was examined, hexagons began to appear in droplets. However, the most consistent appearance of crystals was when they used distilled water. Basic hexagons formed, however, without any dendrites, the arms, so to speak, which give the snowflake its famous shape. Dr. Imoto passed away in 2014. His successor in researching this realm is Dr. Yasuyuki Nemoto. Dr. Nemoto is today the president of Office Masao Imoto. I asked him what triggered Dr. Imoto's work. It all began with snowflakes, said Dr. Nemoto. As you know, no two snowflakes are alike. Some scientists of snow in Japan, he said that the snowflake is a letter from the heaven. The reason why they are different you know, from each other is because uh, the each snowflake coming down from the heaven to the ground, but uh, every snowflake has its own experience, of course, because uh, you know, there are no two identical roots for two snowflakes. And when you observe the shape of a snowflake on the ground, the shape would reflect the experience that the, that snowflake had experienced. And Dr. Emoto was reading the book about snowflakes, and then he got an idea. If we could observe some crystal form like a snowflakes, then the shape of the ice crystal might reflect the information contained in the liquid water. And if I say, like, I love you, or I thank you, and after I put the, um, this information into water, then if you freeze the water, and if you could observe shapes like a snowflake, then the shape might be different depending on what kind of information the liquid water contained. Dr. Emoto was thinking, if the water contains information which is uh, very harmonious with nature, then we'll observe hexagonal harmonious water crystal. But if the water contained destructive energy not harmonious with nature, then we could not observe any beautiful water crystal. In Messages from Water, Emoto wrote, When you have become the embodiment of gratitude, think about how pure the water that fills your body will be. When this happens, you, yourself, will be a beautiful, shining crystal of light. I asked Dr. Nimoto about water in the Shinto religion. As we heard from Professor Harvey, purification practices by water are commonplace everywhere in the world. For example, if you want to do something before the deities, 
in the shrine, we usually clean our body. And in this case, we go into the river or ocean to cleanse our body. This is a very ancient tradition in Shintoism. We say this misogi. Misogi is a Japanese word to cleanse our body. And of course, if you go to shrine in Japan, before you go to the main area, you wash your hands and your mouth with water. This is the tradition. And in light of this ritual, the purification of the mouth, you can better understand why Dr. Imoto saw words to be so important. In the book, you can see how the words thank you produced a symmetrical hexagon with dendrites, and the word compassion created a hexagon with extremely elaborate dendrites, while saying you fool generated a frozen sample which resembles a desert-like scorched and parched land. No symmetry, no harmony. Dr. Imoto's work came under quite a lot of criticism. Scientists who did admire the aesthetics of the crystal's soothing symmetry still saw no scientific proof behind his work. As they said, it lacks the rigors of pure science. Dr. Nimoto, a trained biologist who held positions in universities in Japan and the US, can see why the work is perceived as avant-garde at best. He's not brushing off the criticism. He brings with him a broader view, he says, by using scientific practices in a new field of research. It is still in the early days, he says, as my field is quite different. Even now, the most scientists are thinking water is just a medium in the cells. It's not an active component. This image is completely wrong. I believe the water in your body always exchanging information with other part of water. So this is a new image about the biology or about the life. I told you this is the very beautiful water crystal, this is the partially beautiful water crystal. It's a very subjective criteria. It's not objective. So you could criticize what I told, but then basically there is nothing new. Indigenous people or you know in your Jewish tradition or Shintoism tradition, we knew that the water can cleanse our body. Or water can take out the bad energy or bring the good energy. I'm interested in the connection between science and spirituality. But uh, also I could say the same thing, like uh, interaction between human consciousness and water. Okay, so water crystal technology is uh, one, one of the methods to explore these topics. I sat down for a short conversation with Odette Distel. There was something I was quite curious about. You are the head of uh, Israel New Tech, part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy, and right. yet when a journalist comes and says, let's do an episode about the spirit of water, you don't flinch. Moreover, it sounds quite reasonable to you, even somewhat obvious. How come? Well, Idan, you've mentioned before the four elements, water, air, fire, and earth. According to the Greeks, yes. Yes, those elements are the drivers of what is happening in the world. We know that each element has its positive side, the negative side, the positive forces and the negative forces that influences our lives 
And we're discussing here the element of water. And water has the obvious appearance, the physical performance, all those elements that uh, we're discussing through our episodes in Waterline. But it is important to acknowledge the different layers of this element, the philosophical, spiritual, metaphysical appearance of water and the fact that water is the element that brings together ideas, people, concepts, nations, organizations, materials, and therefore it is one of the most crucial parts of uh, our existence. Because it, it is all connected. When you see the big picture, then uh, you get it in a totally different uh, magnitude. And you can understand the value of what you do. You can understand the impact that uh, what you do can bring to this sector and basically to the world. So for you, it's not whether or not there is a spirit to water. You say it's a given. Now let's work alongside with it. Yes, absolutely. Water is life. Life is water. NASA's scientists answer to the age-old question, are we alone in this universe, always begins with a search for indicators of the presence of water on far-off planets. Human beings are more than just matter. The spirit is what drives us forward, and water nourishes both. I leave you with the words of Professor Graham Harvey. In Maori tradition, in New Zealand, the rivers are themselves personal beings with relationships to the other beings, the humans and the others who live around them. When you start to look around and you think, lots of ancient stories talk about animals doing things with humans, and then you think, that's just a funny story. But, but then you begin to notice that, say, chimpanzees do these things, and you think, what are we not noticing about other animals or birds? Maybe they are trying to communicate with us about the shared use of water and land that we could be more respectful of. And maybe some of these religious stories have a deeper truth that's useful in this dangerous age we live in of uh, human dominance over the planet. I've been doing some research in Arctic Norway among the Sami people, and I was standing by a river The water was very high because the ice on the mountains was melting very quickly, more than it should. And I talked to a local Sami guy and he said he was worried. The salmon and the trout who spawn in the river, they couldn't get into the river because the water flow was too strong and the water was too cold. And he said, it's not just about us wanting to eat the fish. The fish have been coming to this river thousands and thousands of years, and now there's a danger they may not breed again. So I think, you know, those kinds of encounters with specific sacred rivers or important communal rivers reminded me that even locally, our own water is important too. Waterline is brought to you by Israel Newtek and is a PI Media production. Produced by PI Media.